It's important to know your own strength. We constantly make decisions based on our own estimations of our strength, whether it's simple physical strength or emotional strength, spiritual strength, financial strength, or whatever other kind of strength might be applicable to a given situation. Can I move this couch by myself or should I get someone to help me? My wife Megan will tell you that the better question I should ask myself is, should I move this couch by myself? Or even better yet, can I move this couch by myself without damaging anything? Can I handle this conversation without losing control of my emotions? Or should I wait for another time? Can we afford to go on this fancy vacation? Or should we try something a little less expensive? Is this a situation where I'm confident that I can handle the temptation? Or should I get out before I give in? Maybe we don't think these thoughts quite so explicitly even. But they constantly happen as we make decisions throughout life. And bad things can happen when we estimate our strength wrong. When we underestimate it, we might miss out on some good things. Maybe we're not bold enough to strike up a conversation with someone who could have been a lifelong friend. Maybe we don't go on that trip that could have made lasting memories for us because we underestimate how well we could afford it. Maybe we accidentally hurt someone that we care about because we're physically just a bit stronger than we remembered. When we overestimate our strength, bad things happen too. Dents get put in drywall when we think we can move furniture without help. We lose our temper in what should have been a gentle conversation. We find ourselves caught in a sin because we thought we could handle that temptation. It's important to know your strength. So that's our goal today, to know our strength. And to accomplish this, we're looking at our second reading, some verses from Peter's first letter to the believers throughout the churches of Asia Minor, which is now Western Turkey today. After examining what Peter wrote, we should come away with a healthier estimation of the strength we have to face the challenges, temptations, and sufferings that we endure every day. If you were to read all of 1 Peter, you would find a huge number of imperative verbs, commands, or at least exhortations that Peter gives to the believers who are spread out through that region on the northeast end of the Mediterranean Sea. His purpose in writing is to give direction and encouragement to these people who, like us, faced all sorts of troubles. And his first command for them and for us in our reading today is to be humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time, he writes. If we're going to have an accurate idea of our own strength, it's going to require a certain amount of humility. And even the most humble of us struggle with this, don't we? As soon as you think you're humble, after all, you've lost it. As soon as you realize how wonderfully humble you are, you're proud of how humble you are, and that's not so humble anymore, right? Even if you're realistic about your physical strength, after all, you're no spring chicken anymore. Maybe you get proud of how wise you are. Maybe you realize you don't have the book knowledge, but you're proud of your experiential knowledge, your street smarts. Maybe you realize your financial limits, but you're sure better at caring for others than those rich, selfish people. Ultimately, we do all struggle against this delusion that somehow we're better than those other people because we've just got the right strengths or the right beliefs, the right values, the right politics the right theology. And when we do this, there's a really good chance that we're overestimating our own strength. We think that we are more powerful than we really are, and maybe we have reason to be proud in front of some other people for some reason, but Peter isn't telling us to compare ourselves to others. He doesn't tell us to be humble because of how we compare to others. He tells us to be humble under God's mighty hand. That's a pretty good reminder. I can get pretty puffed up and proud about how good of a person I am when I choose to look at other people, 
especially when I'm selective about the other people I look at. Isn't that why things like reality television exist? I can feel better about myself because I can judge those trashy people. I'm not in their situation, so I can have all the fun in the world talking about what they should have done, what they should have said, where they went wrong, what I would have done if I was in their shoes. When I think about God's mighty hand, the hand that he didn't even need to use to create the universe because his simple command was enough, the pride might just shrink a little bit, don't you think? Suddenly we're not so strong, not so powerful, not so perfect, not so smart after all. Even though we can be so eager to have our glory now, suddenly God's timing finally seems better than our own. None of us particularly like to give up our pride, but it's a good thing for us, ultimately. I mean, how many of you like to ask for help? It's not fun to ask someone for even a simple favor, is it? Uh, We don't want to admit we need help with a hard assignment or need more time for a project. We might rather end up on the streets than be on the receiving end of charity. We wait far too long to get counseling for a relationship. And in the end, what does hanging on to our pride do for us? Doesn't it just lead to a lot of unnecessary anxiety? Isn't it just a breath of fresh air when you finally ask for the help that you need? You wonder why you didn't do it sooner? Peter's second command to us believers gives us one reason it's important for us to humble ourselves and recognize the limits of our strength. He writes, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Instead of foolishly and self-destructively hanging on to all this anxiety and worry, we can let go of those things. Actually, the Greek and English are way more dramatic than that. Cast those things, throw them on the Lord. This is really the first step to knowing our strength. It's having the humility, and it does take humility to admit that we are actually very weak. How often do we carry all the anxiety and worry and angst with us for no reason other than we don't want to let go of our pride? How often do we struggle when we really don't have to struggle? We know that God cares for us, but how often do we act as if he didn't? We need to repent of this prideful kind of thinking and be realistic about our strength, or maybe more accurately, our weakness. It's worth pausing here for a second to address the fact that not all anxiety we have in this life is brought on by sinful pride. Peter isn't saying it's a sin to be anxious or have anxiety, and neither am I. Some people, of course, suffer from anxiety as a result of mental illness, and if you're one of those people, your anxiety is a result of sin, just like every other illness, and not even specifically a result of some specific sin on your part. It's up to us to know our own hearts and identify places where anxiety is coming from, whether it's a prideful insistence that we have to handle something on our own, or if it's coming from our own mental health. Either way, the way to deal with it is the same. Cast it all on the Lord. Throw it on his plate. Put it on his back. If it's sinful, prideful anxiety, humble yourself and entrust your worries to God. Let go of those things that you are so pridefully insisting on controlling that ultimately you know you can't. If your anxiety is brought on by just the way your brain is wired and the chemistry in your brain, do the same. Give it up to the Lord. He cares for you after all. And this is one of the things that we might take for granted. We might forget about because it's so obvious, but it sets our God, the one true God, apart from the gods of every other religion. He's the only one who cares for his people. He's the only one who cares for you. The gods of every other religion live on a different level. 
they're divine. They're busy with God's stuff, and they really can only care about people as far as the people please them. They'll send messengers, maybe, but only to tell people how to be good enough to make them happy or what they're supposed to do as the lower-level beings. But our God is completely different. Even though he is so much higher than us and on such a different level, he's the only God who cares so much about us that he involves himself with us, invites us to take all of our worries, both great and small, to him, and, most importantly, made the greatest sacrifice of all time in order to save us. So that's really the first reason we need to have an accurate idea of our own strength. It's so that we can humbly admit that we need God's help, turn over all of our worries to him, and not suffer as a result of our own pride. We need to be able to admit that we're weak, humbly, for our own good. The second reason it's important for us to have a humble and realistic view of our own strength is what Peter talks about next. We have a very serious enemy, maybe more dangerous than we realize. Peter writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you ever wonder why your life, even your life of faith, is so often a struggle? Do you ever wonder why your problems don't seem to stop piling up, even though you do pray and do go to church? Are you ever exhausted from falling victim to carelessness, lovelessness, and indifference, even from the people who are close to you? Do you ever wonder why that one tempting sin always seems so enticing, even though you know it's burned you again and again? Peter says we need to be alert to wake up, to realize who we're up against. We can't afford to be foggy or unfocused or unsober. We need clear and sober minds because the truth is we have a terrible enemy, the devil himself, and we can't afford to underestimate his strength. The devil is one of the most powerful angels. He was a spirit created to serve God, and we don't know a whole lot about what went wrong, but at some point he rebelled against God and led many of us many of God's other angels in this rebellion. In Revelation chapter 12, God showed John a vision of this. A great dragon swept a third of the stars out of the sky with its tail. Now this terrible devil and all his demons who followed him live only to hurt God, but the thing is they can't hurt God. He judged them already. Their fate is sealed, and they don't have the power to overthrow him or do anything against him. So how do you cause pain to someone you can't touch? Go after the ones they love, don't you? And that thought is really in the word that for enemy that Peter uses here. It's a word that most commonly means accuser. It has courtroom connotations. It's the, it's the prosecuting attorney, really. So often when we think of our sins, we think that it's God who's accusing us of our sinfulness. But the truth is, God is our judge, not our accuser. Satan is the one who accuses us. He's the one who's trying to take us to court before our Heavenly Father and use his own laws against his own children to separate us eternally. It makes sense now why he wants you to sin, doesn't it? He doesn't care about you. Hell isn't his kingdom where he gets to rule and have you as his citizen. He's not looking for more friends. Hell is his prison. And if he gets you condemned to suffer there with him, it breaks God's heart. So the devil's constantly lurking prowling around like this apex predator lion, looking for any or every opportunity he can have to pounce on you and get you to sin so that he can say, Aha! God, look! You have to condemn this person. They've sinned against you, and you know what your law says about this sin. We can't afford to ignore him or forget about him as much as he wants us to. 
He'd love for us to forget he exists. He'd love for us to live our lives as if there's no danger, there's no temptation, but we have to remain alert and on guard against our accuser because he's going to take anything he can get to use against us in God's courtroom. And Peter calls us not only to be aware of this dreadful enemy, but to stand firm against his attacks. Obviously, that's what we must do, but do we have the strength? On our own, we definitely don't. But by God's grace, you and I know that we're not on our own. One of the cool things that happens as we learn more about our Savior Jesus is that we also learn more about ourselves and who we are. That means that this epiphany season, as we've been peeling back the layers of who God's word reveals Jesus to be, we're learning more about ourselves as well. Last week, we saw how Jesus had the authority even to boss the devil's henchmen around. And this week, we've seen how he exists to undo the devil's work and strengthen his own against the devil. When you see Jesus, what you're really seeing is your own strength, too. Because by faith, that's how it works. He gives you his strength. First, God the Holy Spirit has called you into his church. And that means you're not alone. Not only is the Holy Spirit with you as your advocate and guide, not only is Jesus living in your heart, but you have a family of believers around the world and even throughout time. Peter draws on that as an encouragement for you as you face the devil's attack. He says, resist him. Why? Because you're not alone when the devil attacks you. You're not the only one who suffers this way. You're not the only one facing temptation that feels impossible to overcome. You're not the only one who struggles with doubt. We're all in this together. Your brothers and sisters in faith know what it's like too, even if they don't have the same exact temptations or weaknesses that you do. And I think we could probably do a better job of talking about that. It doesn't really do us any good at all to act like we're all above temptation. Second, and most importantly, you are connected to your Savior. God has, as Peter says, called you to his eternal glory in Christ. God himself, Peter says, will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. No, you don't have the strength to fight the devil yourself. All you could do is either willingly give in to him or slip into blissful ignorance, which doesn't lead you anywhere any better. But that's not what God has called you to. He's called you to eternal glory in Christ. He's connected you to Christ, as we talked about weeks ago in baptism. He's the God who cares about you. He's the one who sent his son Jesus to pay for your sins, the ones your accuser Satan wants to use against you. Now, when the devil goes to court and brings his charges against you, God doesn't listen. That sin's already punished. We already dealt with this case, is what he's going to tell the devil. You don't have a case now against my child. There's nothing that the devil can do to undo what Jesus has already done for you. You couldn't beat him on your own. You couldn't even overcome your own pride on your own, honestly, but you're not on your own, though. And God promises to give you the strength that you need. You have Jesus. When you see him and his ultimate authority, when you see him and his strength, when you see him and his promises to you, you're looking at your strength. So, be humble. Cast all your anxiety on your God who cares about you. Be alert and sober about your terrible enemy and resist him and stand firm. It sounds like a tall order, something that you could never be strong enough to do. But it's not impossible for you, because Jesus is your strength. Amen.